Hey there, this is Amanda. And this is Mina. And you're listening to possibly the last episode of Creative Confessionals. So we're bummed to say that between our two busy schedules, it's been a little bit hard to keep up, as you may have noticed. To sum it up, our lives have been really crazy. And um, we have had an amazing time interviewing our guests, and we're really excited to bring you another interview with Yvonne Montoya, who is a dancer, choreographer, and the founder of Safo's Dance Theater. Uh, so Yvonne Montoya is a mother, a dance maker, consultant, and founding director of Safo's Dance Theater based in Tucson, Arizona. Originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Yvonne is a process-based dance maker who creates low-tech, site-specific, and site-adaptive pieces for non-traditional dance spaces. Her work is grounded in and inspired by the landscapes, languages, cultures, and the aesthetics of the U.S. Southwest. Yvonne is the lead choreographer for Safos, and under her direction, the company won the Tucson Pima Arts Council Lumi Award for Emerging Organization in 2015. Yvonne is currently working on two solo projects, Motherhood and the Performing Arts, a multidisciplinary project that explores the challenges and joys of juggling motherhood with a career in the performing arts, and Stories from Home, a series of movement vignettes based on her family's oral histories. In 2017, the trailer for Yvonne's MPA project dance film, Reflections, won the Best Art Film at the Tucson 3-Minute Fringe Film Festival. Her choreography has been staged throughout the Southwest, and her dance films have been screened in Tucson, North Carolina, and at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. From 2017 to 2018, Yvonne was a postgraduate fellow in dance at Arizona State University's Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts in the Projecting All Voices initiative, where she organized the inaugural Dance in the Desert, a gathering of Latinx dance makers. Currently, Yvonne is a guest choreographer at the Grand Canyon University in Phoenix and Tucson's Magnet High School in Tucson. She is also working with colleagues to plan Dance in the Desert 2019, and she recently was listed in AZ Central's Who's Next, alongside some other amazing local creators, including our past guest, Estrella Payton. All right, so without further ado, here is our interview with Yvonne. So I'm from northern New Mexico. Um, my family's been there forever. I'm a Latina, mestiza, manita, Chicana from there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're one of the enclave of people that are there, those that did not cross the border. The border crossed us in 1848. Um, and I was really interested in New- northern New Mexican history because we got a little bit of it in New Mexico high school, but not a whole lot, or maybe it was middle school. Um, and my... Growing up, I just thought everyone's grandparents spoke Spanish. I didn't know that that wasn't a thing Mm -hmm. um, until later. And so I was very curious, like, well, why is that the case? And and that, you know, it's a different experience. Um, And I would keep asking my dad these questions about, like, history. And my dad had these great stories, but he would tell me, if you really want to know where we come from, you need to talk to your great-grandma. Well, great-grandma was born in Truchas, New Mexico, lived her whole life in the Puaque Valley in this little village of El Rancho, which is on the San Lifonso Indian Reservation, mm-hmm. and she didn't speak a word of English. Well, maybe a few words. She knew how to say, like, a couple. But, you know, not enough to really have a conversation. So I said, okay, 
I'm going to learn Spanish so I can speak with her. So I came and I studied Spanish here at the university so that I could have a conversation with my great grandma and learn a little bit more about um, our history. And so then going into MAS and switching to the history and culture was to study that. Mm -hmm. So my um, graduate thesis was about um, language loss. Yeah. that accompanied the construction of the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory, which turned into Los Alamos National Laboratory, that constructed the atomic bomb that was dropped in Japan during World War II. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm the great-great-granddaughter of Noberto Roival, who was one of the um, homesteaders living on the Pajarita Plateau that was kicked off by the government so they could construct the lab. Oh so that, was, that marks the fourth colonization of that area, and that was when in elementary school, my grandparents went in, they changed their names, you know, they spanked them for speaking Spanish yeah, and wow. really had these severe like Americanization programs that were yeah. very racist and called them dirty and like just was the whole thing. So um, I was very interested in that. Um, and then later, I, being in academia, I realized that all this work that goes into being a scholar um, isn't really shared with the community, yeah. right? You have like these grad students that are working really hard on these dissertation, these thesis, and the work's really not getting out there. Who reads it? And a class of five grad students. So that's when I started becoming interested in using dance and art to share these stories with larger audiences rather than just the academy. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Well, so Mina and I always say that we need to learn Spanish. I, I can't speak to my grandmother. Oh, I never had a conversation with like my great grandparents on my dad's side. Like they didn't pass until I was like a teenager, yeah. but like we had a language barrier. Like no one taught me Spanish, and they didn't learn English, so we yeah. never had a conversation like ever. But that is that is it's so fascinating to use art as like a medium to kind of push this information that people are studying in academia into society. Have you found that to be effective in the communities that you've worked in? I have. I had, it, it's challenging to get, I think it's changing, but when I first started like about 10 years ago, it was challenging to get academics to be like, oh yeah, we want to just do this in art form. Except for there's a university, the University of Durham in the UK was doing this. They were requiring their students that were getting their PhDs to um, have somebody, some partner with an artist and have their work shown in some artistic form. Wow, so they're already wow. doing their, um, oh my goodness, about 15 years ago um, at that university. I think now it's changed a little bit um, and you see kind of the performing arts, at least theater and dance, well, maybe more sort of theater moving towards kind of sharing these community stories and being out in the community and, and, and that type of stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important. I think that um, I was brought up with, you know, these strong Chicana academic feminists that were saying, like, if you have a, a voice, you make sure it's being used for good. And, yeah. you know, people, I, when I was a dancer, I was just a dancer, not a choreographer, dancing with these companies. People were paying to come see dances. I'm like, yeah. look, it's a platform. It's interesting, too, how you're kind of meshing these two, two of your backgrounds together, you know, in dance and in um, Mexican cultural studies, because I think, you know, and like you said before, nobody needs a BFA or an MFA to be a great artist. Um, and oftentimes I think we're finding that. So even, you know, artists that are pursuing MFAs, they're still kind of working in these academic bubbles, not really pushing it beyond that gallery wall um, into the community. And that is, I think it's a kind of a disservice 
um, for the community and for the art itself. I don't know how we'll solve that, but <laughs> I think that I'm hoping this is a part of it, this com these conversations. It was lovely hearing the connection about the Spanish language loss and the, and like the, the three of us share and then like yeah. trying to you know reach out. I feel like there was so much, even though I learned the language, it was very academic and it was yeah. very, and then I married a Mexicano, so my Spanish is very Mexicano and it's not from Northern New Mexico and there's still so much that was lost. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of trauma and there's reasons like why my parents didn't teach me Spanish. Right. Yeah. 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 And so recognizing and holding these stories as, as valid and is, is, it's important. Totally. Yeah. I think it's something that I, I would say that my grandpa regrets, but I know that he's shared with me why he chose not to teach me Spanish. And it's because growing up, his, Spanish was his first language in California and, um, he, he would get teased, he would get made fun of and bullied. Um, and then I think, you know, coming to Yuma and getting into the agricultural field there as he's a, he's, he was a, his career was in tractor sales. So he had to work with, you know, the white farmers and kind of be able to um, communicate with them in a way that he could make the sale. But at the same time, he also had to, he was the guy that they would send across the border to sell to the Mexican farmers. And so then he kind of really had to readopt the Spanish language. Um, and I think, you know, as, you know, he didn't teach my mother, he didn't teach me, um, but I think, because I think he associated, you know, education with English and he wanted us to go to college and he didn't want us to get, um, you know, teased at all, but, looking back now where we are, he really sees that it, it did kind of put us at a disadvantage because knowing multiple languages is really beneficial now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel the same way. Like, because um, Spanish was my dad's first language. Um, he lived in Puerto Rico until he was like, like 11 or like 12. And then they moved to Florida uh, and he had to learn English and people would like make fun of him for having like an accent. Um, my mom used to make fun of him. That's how they got together. <laughs> like she used to like bully him. <laughs> and, like, I guess like, <laughs> turn into a marriage somehow. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, now I'm here 25 years later. <laughs> but yeah, um, so yeah, like, I mean, he got like a lot of like negative feedback for having like an accent and having to learn English. Yeah. And like, so it wasn't like a priority for him at all. And then he was in the army when I was really small. So when I was like around the time where you would teach a child language, he was like deployed to Panama. Mm -hmm where he was using his Spanish, but I was here watching yeah. Sesame Street, learning English, and nobody was around. My grandma, actually, I did spend time with her, but like it was not a priority for her. Yeah. She was just like, why are we gonna teach her Spanish? Like, we're in America. And yeah. I was like, nah, I'm just like, oh my God, like I wish I spoke Spanish. And I do Duolingo like now and then. And I'm like, this is so hard. Like, it's so hard <laughs> to learn this as like an adult. Like, I'm like dying. Yeah but I still definitely want to learn. Like, I'm always like, we should do it together. Like, even if I do like 10 minutes of Duolingo a day, that's better than nothing. Yeah. It's so beautiful to me that, you know, because of that disconnect you had with your family, that you were just, you're just going to get a degree to be able to communicate with that. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. Thank you. You guys are going to make me tear up and cry <laughs> thinking of my great-grandma. She, she's since passed, but <laughs> yeah. So what has been the biggest challenge uh, you faced in pursuit of your creative goals um, internally, externally, or in any other way? 
Wow, that's a, it's a loaded, loaded question. question. <laughs> okay, so um, when I was adjunct at U of A, mm -hmm. and I was dancing for these companies, I did I did take dance at the university as an undergrad. Um, so I was in the department there. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't major in it, but I was there taking classes. And then in grad school, because I knew the professors, I would audit the modern classes. So I always I was still training, and I was dancing with local companies. Um, and I was usually the only Latina or person of color in these companies. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, if I wasn't the only one, there was just some other, someone else. Um, it was the most racism I've ever experienced in my life. And I am like a light-skinned Latina with no accent, right? Like there's, it was, yeah. Um, I debuted some choreography with a company in 2006. It was a terrible experience. Uh, and I was just very not happy and I kept complaining and my friends were like, why don't you, one of my friends is very blunt. She's not my Kia because I, through marriage, she connected me with my current husband. Anyway, um, she, uh, she just told me, she was like, well, why don't you do something about it? Because <laughs> she's like, I'm tired of hearing you complain. And I thought, and I was like, you know, I bet you I could. I bet you I could run a company and I bet you I could do better community outreach than said company at the time was doing. Um, but then I decided to quit and move to LA because my husband, he wasn't my husband at the time, but he was dancing in LA. I was like, I'll go move with him. But that didn't happen. We ended up staying in Tucson. He came back to Tucson. Um, and I birthed a child, birthed a company nine months later and, uh, was running the company the same time that I was teaching at the university. Mm -hmm. And then it got to be too much. I couldn't do both. The company grew so that I needed to um, tend to that more. So I stopped teaching at the university and kind of did the company um, and the mom thing as kind of two full-time jobs. And I ran it as like a traditional dance company for what's typical of Tucson until 2015. Um, and then realized that this wasn't sustainable and I needed to shift the approach and so I did. So to answer the question of what I'm doing now, I just finished a post-graduate uh, fellowship um, at ASU where I was a Projecting All Voices fellow um, in the School of Film, Theater and Dance. My mentor was Liz Lerman and um, as a part of that I um, organized and produced with some um, partner organizations Dance in the Desert which was the to the best of my knowledge, the first gathering of Latinx dance makers in the region, if not nationally. Mm -hmm. um, and we brought um, Latinx dance makers together from the Phoenix metro area, Tucson, Douglas, and then also nationally and even internationally. We had someone Skype in from Quito, Ecuador. Mm -hmm. um, but we had people from New York City, San Antonio, um, Vermont, um, uh, missing Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I know I'm probably missing a few other places, just kind of come together and do a temperature check of the field and talk about what we need. Um, so I did that and then um, I worked on some choreography and incubated a few pieces and most recently, two weeks ago, I staged a piece, Braceros, about my father's um, time as a bracero working in Yuma. Mm -hmm. um, when he was a teenager and uh, that was a part of Urban Bush Women's opening night performance. I had a fantastic cast of five amazing dancers. Mm -hmm. It was the second time in my entire career that I had all cast of color. Wow. Um, it was a beautiful experience. Or it, they did great. Um, and so yeah, that's that's where I am now. Yeah, I wish I had been able to see that because I went, I didn't go to the opening. 
No, you went to the second one, but yeah, yeah, it was. I'm hoping to get a video of it because they did a phenomenal job in, in really sharing that story. So the work that I'm, I should mention this, the piece is a part of a larger series of vignette, movement vignettes that I'm doing that are called Stories from Home, mm -hmm. and they're based on oral histories of my family. So really looking at the movement, um, look at, really looking at the stories of this region, northern New Mexico, southern Arizona, like the whole southwest region, but also um, I'm beginning to question and, and to explore and examine what are the contemporary movement aesthetics of this place, yeah. because I've been indoctrinated in these Western Eurocentric, you know, very balletic, classic, what I'm calling classic modern, mm -hmm. gram-based forms. Um, but that's not how my ancestors moved. So what are the contemporary movement expressions of this place? What would you say has been the biggest challenge you faced in pursuit of your creative goals, um, both internally, externally, um, in any other way? Externally, I think this is a big challenge in the arts in general, specifically in this region, specifically those that are, like the farther away you get from like the center of like power, I think, or in this case, Phoenix, like this gets more challenging. So resources, yeah. access, to, access to resources. The West, the 13 Western states in general are very underserved in terms of the arts. Um, the rural communities here in Arizona are really underserved, right? Yeah, the mm -hmm. mid-sized cities too. Um, yeah. So just having, so, so it leads to a lot of like talent drain, right? So yeah. students graduate from the university here and then they leave because they can't sustain a career. Um, and then being able to like pay dancers and like make money off the art, like that's, that's challenging. Um, also lack of mentors and role models as a Latina dancer, I didn't have those growing up in my career. My two choreography mentors were white men yeah. older white men like my dad and grandparents age so um, not being able to workshop pieces with people that understood the aesthetic I was going for oh, yeah. or like th that lack of like for lack of a better word cultural competency was has been really challenging mm -hmm. um, and yeah also lack of peers it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that I was able to find a peer network that I meet with once a month, but they're not based in Arizona. I'm the only person in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. um, it, but before that, I, w I didn't have anyone to talk about these issues with. I was just kind of really, the isolation was really big. That's yeah. a really, really big challenge. Um, and I think I think that's true of like, you know, other artists in these rural pockets and these other communities, and even maybe in maybe in Phoenix, that there's you know that isolation's real because in the West we have these large geographic distances between yeah. us <laughs> that don't exist on like the East Coast, right. and so this yeah. is you know it's something that we I don't think on the national level people think of that are challenges like the yeah. geographic isolation is a big deal For sure. here, um, and then um, I think internally it's. That feeling of like, I can't do it all, but I want to do it all. I know that when we were talking on the phone, Amanda, like a few weeks ago, I was saying like that idea that something's always got to give. Yeah. So right since I started, well, I, I, I was injured on July, January 21st, 2017. I still remember the date because it like will probably be the, the career ending injury um, in terms of like dance. But uh, so I haven't really trained since then. But um I, it was the irony of like, I get this fellowship in dance and I stopped dancing yeah. because I just didn't have time to dance because I was so busy like choreographing, organizing stuff. So that's what's given right now. I haven't mm -hmm. trained. 
oh my gosh, in like a year and a half. So that like, but there's always something that, that has to give. So when I was dancing a lot, and I was dancing for like local choreographers, and I wasn't working on my choreography as much as I wanted to be. So that like, finding that balance is, is like really, really hard. Also, I get pulled a lot to like pay the bills into like the arts admin positions. Oh, yeah. And even with the company, it was like, 90% art admin, 10% art making. The art making always took a backseat. Yeah. So like tr being like, no, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z today. I'm going to focus on the art or like I'm, I have two hours and I'm going to choreograph and do nothing else, even though there's all these emails pinging on my phone and you know. I mean, I work with startups. I'm sure our listeners are going to be tired of me saying I work with startups, but um, this was a podcast about art. Uh, but that's one thing that we always, it's so funny because I, I think the reason why I do well with these bioscience and engineering types is because I know this, I know how, you, how much you want to work on the craft or the art or the product. And, but in order to build a business, you need to do that business, which sucks and it's no fun, but otherwise the, the ship sinks. And it's so hard for us to get that them to think in that way and artists have to deal with the same thing <laughs> yeah like my website is a year out of date <laughs> and people are like i was at your website and i'm like oh my goodness but i just like finding that time yeah. to like update it and like it, it's it's really hard like that balance and i have a kid so that makes it like <laughs> even harder like the time yeah. management and then so yeah that's that internally that's always a dance um, mm -hmm. And then the other thing, I think because I, because of the no MFAs, BFAs, because I don't have peers or mentors yeah. that I can really turn to, that questioning, like, am I, the, am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? That, like, mm -hmm. what is the value to the field? That, like, internal questioning sometimes um, has led me away from the field twice. So yeah. that's, that's a thing, too. I'm, I'm probably going to cut this part out. But I went to yoga this morning <laughs> and um, before class, you know, like set your intention, yada, yada. And um, so I thought I was going to set my intention. And then the instructor suggested that if you can't think of an intention, um, focus on getting out of your own way. And I don't think I've ever like pushed myself like because you know when I when I think get out of my own way I think don't be so hard on myself to excel but when she said that and I kind of that kind of slipped into my head like I feel like I've never been quite as flexible or as strong in any class just because I'm always getting in my own way I'm always second guessing my abilities to do something and really we do that so often as artists as yeah. creators as I was thinking about that the other day I was like I create like problems for my future self like it's not me <laughs> like it's like it's somebody else that I'm like torturing but it's me yeah. I'm like I need to stop like setting myself up for like disasters <laughs> like I'm just like it'll be fine and then in six months it's not fine yeah. just like in all aspects of life but I mean in your situation when you're you're kind of creating your own path in a in a you know as a, an artist as a dancer and so like to get in your own way, that's even more yeah, like, it's, huge. Yeah, it's the self-doubt of like, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Like, should I really be doing this? It's it's that. It's like, well, or or 
like I say, okay, I want to go home to New Mexico and I want to learn the traditional folk dances from the viejitos that are dying off and, and are willing to share the knowledge, mm -hmm. but they think, oh, those young kids don't want to learn it. But it's like, how do I integrate that into a contemporary form? I have no model or template for that. Yeah. You know, so it's like, how, like, oh, you know, so it's kind of like deer in a headlights. Yeah. It's like, well, no, I, I just have to get over the deer in the headlights and get over myself and just like do it. Yeah, and be, I think, confident in the fact that you are probably the first person embarking on this territory of combining cultural or um, not historic, but I mean, what is the right word for this? Generational knowledge with kind of contemporary dance. Yeah, and I think it's necessary because everything that I see on stages here from like the local companies is all stuff that comes from the coast. There's yeah. nothing that's really coming like from movement from these communities here. So, yeah. yeah so, but yeah, that kind of like. <gasps> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, too, every once in a while, I'll be like, I really just want to get paid consistently. <laughs> so there's <Right>. that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. if I could just take this arts admin job and like, travel more you know and so there's also like that part of it too right, mm -hmm. right. you've mentioned a few times you're being a mother and I'm curious to know like how has that challenged you in combination with your dance career yeah so um because I'm crazy I birthed my dance company nine months after I had my child I guess I was just like in this really creative place I also thought if I don't do it now when will I do it mm -hmm. probably never um and for some reason, some delusional first mom reason, I thought I'd have more time. I don't know what I was thinking. That was no way. Yeah, so I, um, it's hard. It's hard. I am very blessed because I have a really, really great support system. Mm -hmm. My in-laws are here. Uh, and when he was younger and I needed to start training again, because I didn't dance the year that I had him. Um, I think my life would have been better had I danced through my pregnancy, but I was, I like left the companies I was at and I was going to move to LA, but didn't. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So when I was, went back to train, I would drop him off with Nana and she'd take care of him. She, um, doesn't work. So she's kind of like on call mm -hmm. babysitter. It is a 45 minute drive from here. So it's not like mm -hmm. it was a three hour thing to like go get him and like pick him up. It was, it was a thing, but, um, she was there and then when I was in Phoenix I had to be there for like a week a month and then there was like two weeks and there was a whole month I was there mm -hmm. for the entirety of April coming home every other weekend um, my brother-in-law would come stay the night at the house take him to school take him to all his after-school activities uh, so I'm very lucky uh, my husband too, he's really great. He's a retired dancer, which he told me not to tell anyone, but I don't think he's on the podcast, so it's okay. Um, so he understands like the, uh, the, the need to rehearse so much. And you know, yeah. when we're, it's tech week, we're at the theater till like midnight, he gets it. So he'll pick him up from the dance studio. And you know, when I need to take a class or I, you know, I had my own company, so I could take him to rehearsal and just kind of mm -hmm. leave him there. It's hard for me to focus. I don't think the dancer has ever had a problem with it. Um, but I missed a lot. I go back and I look at how, after I lost my father in 2015, I was like, oh wow, time is really sacred. And I missed a lot of his toddler years because I was hustling so much for my dance company for really little like return on investment in terms of like the grant writing and stuff. It was it's really hard to have a nonprofit in Southern Arizona. It's really not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Like that model doesn't work here. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized like I missed a lot 
I remember writing the 501c3 application for the um, company and he was, I was weaning him from breastfeeding and he was climbing up trying to like get in my lap and I'd pick him up and put him in the crib because I just had to finish this one paragraph and he was like, start crying. So since then, like there was that struggle and I was like, I cannot miss anymore. So that was one of the main factors for me restructuring my company to what it is now, which is different than a traditional dance company. Um, so that I could spend more time with them. And then I immediately launched the MPA project, which is a motherhood in the performing arts project. And I created a dance film with him um, just to spend more time with them. And he is, he's 10, but he's still at the age that he wants to do things with me. And he keeps, well, why, when are we gonna dance? He wants to do MPA on a stage. Like, when are we gonna dance together again? And he feels this like really big buy-in. Like his identity was, cause he grew up with the company, was really wrapped into the company. Yeah. And when we do company stuff again, when am I see you dance again? And he wasn't at the shows cause he was in New Mexico visiting my family uh -huh. for Urban Bush Women. So he didn't see any of that. And he was kind of disappointed. So, um, because I realize he'll be a teenager soon and won't want anything to do with me. Yeah. And this will be like not cool. Like I'll just be I, very soon. Like it's coming. So I'm like, we have to do something again now. I got to plan that and figure out how to integrate him um, so that we can spend time together. And, and he he's so proud of it. Like he really likes it. But um, it really is a challenge. And I've had to learn to say no to things. And I have to find that balance. Like what's worth it? When is it worth leaving for a month? Yeah. Um, and when is it not? And when, yeah. So I've, I've had to say no to an offer recently because I couldn't be gone from him for such mm -hmm. a certain amount of time. So like that picking and choosing is, is, is a challenge. The other thing is that like motherhood is so invisible. Like there's a lot, of, I work with a lot of women who aren't moms and so they don't understand how hard it is or the needs or we, we have to like hide it and detach yeah. that part of our, like I have to feel like I'd leave that part behind when I get in my car and drive from Tucson to Phoenix, like I transform. Right. Um, and I didn't wish, I wish that didn't have to be the case. I wish that we were more um, open and responsive, but artists are under-resourced and mothers are under-resourced. So working artist mothers yeah. are super under-resourced. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's not something that people really acknowledge in the arts in a, in a significant capacity. Like people make work about motherhood and I mean, people... I, feel like I mean, I feel like it's something that you can't even understand though. Like if you're not like yeah. a mother, like I don't know. My relationship with my mom is like interesting because I have a brother who's six. We're 20 years apart. So I help with him as much as I can. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is so hard. Like who knew <laughs> like that this was so hard? And it's like, it's something that I had no like conception of, like, I feel like until he was born and I was like about like 20 and then I was just like, this yeah. is so much. Like I have like this whole new appreciation for everything my mom's like ever done for me. Cause I'm there a lot for him now. Yeah. And it's a lot <laughs> like, yes, it is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm always trying to like support other working artist moms and like put out there, like we are moms and look at what we're doing because yeah. Yeah. that's kind of not. Not a thing. And in dance too, like when I was a student, it was like, oh no, never have a kid because you'll ruin your body. <laughs> and like now you see like the famous ballerinas with their like pregnant bellies, but then after that, like you never hear of the kids. Like I've never seen the kids. Like yeah. they just disappear <laughs> magically. So at least they're like their bodies, but yeah. So I yeah. mean, there's been baby steps, but it's like, well, okay. Yeah. And there's not a lot of resources for, for moms in general, but performing art moms too, like the 
very few residencies, very few like grant opportunities. I wish there was more. In like the UK and Europe, they have there's museums for working artist moms and there's performances and stuff. And we just don't have it together here in the yeah. states. But we don't in terms of parenthood overall, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So of course, like healthcare, there's totally like, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like we just do whatever we want yeah. over here. <laughs> like we're out to help no one. Maternity, yeah. leave, maternity, leave, family. What's that? Yeah. So like, we're not social. <laughs> We also, yeah. You broke your arm, that'll be $25,000. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so not surprised, but yeah. unfortunate. You said that, you know, in the Southwest, the nonprofit model does not work. Do you have any thoughts on, like, what possibly could work in this region? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> when, when, you, <laughs> when you find out the answer, let me know. Um, well, I say, you know, maybe they work in the Phoenix metro area. I don't know. I know. <laughs> I don't know about like, that. I know, I know. And when I hear people, we got our first C3, and I'm like cringing. I'm like, no, run away. Don't do it. I wish that I yeah. wouldn't have jumped head in. I jumped head into it because I thought that that's what I had to do. But in retrospect, that was a terrible idea. I, it doesn't work in Tucson because our county city funder was one when it was TPAC, and now it's the Arts Foundation of Tucson in Southern Arizona. So now it's also our community foundation. So it's like, there's yeah. what money can I go for? That and then the state. I don't have a large enough budget to go for any funding. Mm -hmm. That's it. Um, and then it's kind of like when I did fundraisers with my dance company, I would compete with all my peer orgs. Yeah. Right? For like I would compete. Safos would hypothetically go for the same group that may go visit a Borderlands show. Yeah. Right? So then I'm competing with peer institutions for grants and then for funding. And then we're just kind of like shuffling money. Like I go to your fundraiser, you come to mine. Yeah. We're just kind of passing money around and that's like not sustainable. Yeah. I tried with the MPA project to have like a for-profit entity. So mm -hmm. I would I make these earrings that like you could do the crowdfunding thing or with the intention of like selling them. But then that's like a whole other business. So yeah. I was like, oh my God, I had to walk away from that. I was like, can't do that. So I don't know if there's like the for-profit, non-profit model thing that's yeah, going I've on. There's like the C4 that. that some states have, but like that seems like you'd have to run two businesses. And yeah. I just like, I don't have enough funding to pay a separate arts administrator mm -hmm. so for my company. So like, how is that gonna work? So I, I don't know the way that I shifted the dance company. Cause I was like, how can I have the largest footprint on the field? but within the given resources, because we were stretched. Yeah. My last show was stretched so thin. The artists like barely got paid. I got barely got paid. Um, and they were working so much and it, it wasn't equitable. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, we can't sustain this. It's not sustainable, it's not equitable. We have to do something different. Yeah. So now I partner like with Dance in the Desert. Sophos was a partner, but I partner with Arizona Commission on the Arts, you know, ASUPAB. Mm -hmm. um, there was um, uh, Liz Lerman, uh, Phoenix Hostel and Cultural Center. So I had some large partners that I worked yeah. with. And I think that that's, that's been successful. And it's been, I've been able to reach larger audiences and, and have a larger impact on the field with that. But in terms of like, yeah, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I, think that's a good, I think that's a good, I mean, that's a good sound response though. Like finding ways to partner with the resources that you do have. And almost like process of elimination, it's like, you know it doesn't work. So it's like, right. you can move on from there. Yeah, I know people, because um, I'm working on turning, or uh, formalizing after art as a business, which is, mm. so after art is the parent of this podcast. And um, 
but I want to hire an editor so I don't have to do all the <laughs> editing. So like I'm going to be offering you know services and trying to generate money for after and for this podcast. And um, whenever I talk about it, people are always like, oh, are you going to do a nonprofit? I'm like, no. <laughs> well, and I'm coming, My all of my background is in business at this point. So I see, I, I get how businesses work. I see it like there's less red tape. Like I'll just go for it. And you know, you don't, yeah. I Grants are so difficult to get. Like it's yes. not worth that crazy. <laughs> It's yes. Crazy. <laughs> yes, grants are, and then that whole like dance company with like a school, like oh, why don't you open up a school? Why do you teach classes? The market is super oversaturated yeah. for dance studios, and, and like again, be competing with peers, and it's it's just it's not sustainable. Yeah, I think that like um, they're not an arts organization, but Westaff, our uh, Western that funds the thirteen Western states, our regional mm -hmm. funder under any mm -hmm. NEA, yeah. um, they have a for profit arm that yeah. generates income and funds a lot of work so I think maybe like looking at that as like how does that model work yeah. um yeah 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 the c3 yeah the c3 is still valuable because you you know sometimes you do need that grant money or you yeah. do need that to to run like things through and first collaborations and stuff but it's it's too hard to sustain on its own yeah. and in the traditional sense of the company it was like not working have to be flexible exactly. as a small business owner always <laughs> So a lot of your work is very non-traditional and it really kind of explores the identity of the Southwest and um, Latinx culture. So how do you see your industry lacking in equity and inclusion? And like, how can we make it better for either dancers or just artists at large? Wow. <laughs> So I think yeah, yeah. So so this is like where that like it's a blessing that I have a background in MAS because it really helps inform like these conversations. But these conversations that need to be had and they need to be had by people that have this education like you do. Oh my God, yes. So, um, yeah. So dance in general or like concert dance. So concert dance being like modern, contemporary, postmodern. I threw all of those into one umbrella. Jazz, ballet. Yeah. Um, that's a very upper middle class art form because it caught, like to get a good quality dance class in Tucson, it's $18 a class. Yes, so expensive. Yes, which is a huge barrier. Plus yeah. like the leotards and the, if you're in ballet, those shoes, it yeah. costs hundreds of dollars that you wear for like a month and yeah. then you, you have to, they're, they're dead and you have to yeah. throw the point shoes away. <laughs> I mean, so you look at who's in these studios, and then, and then if it's a competition school and you have to pay for like the competition, la 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 la, it's very exclusive. And so you're getting, so it's an upper middle class art form, which means when, when race intersects with class, socioeconomic status is predominantly white. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some real barriers. I've seen kids in Tucson, I had, um, Oh my goodness, at this point about 20 years ago, a colleague that I danced with at the U of A who was a teacher at Pister Middle School, and you'd see these kids and they're so insanely talented, yeah. but they're not gonna ever have a career in dance because they don't have consistent access to consistent training, right? There's yeah. these lacks, the, there's these real um, economic barriers. Um, so in general, dance in the Southwest is predominantly white, predominantly, most that are practicing at a high level are probably upper middle class backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, 
those that are are in I, I want to say like in an ASU they call it urban like the hip-hop forms okay. that tend to be a little bit more um, diverse I think we got all in dance as a discipline and we have a long way to go a long way to go so the first issue would be geography like nationally anything that's happening in the southwest is not on the radar mm -hmm. we are completely invisible but you know we do it to ourselves too <laughs> yeah. because there's this notion from presenters big and small that anything that comes from outside of this region is better yeah i totally <laughs> Totally yeah. see that all the time. Yeah, so they're bringing in, yes, so they're bringing in artists from the coast, New York, LA, Seattle, right? Because it's quote unquote better. Yeah. Rather than investing in the local artists that are already doing the work and that have a relationship with community, and they're spending a lot of money to bring them in. Mm -hmm. they're, and I'm, I keep thinking to myself, if you gave that famous choreographer that you brought in to Tucson or to Phoenix a fraction, if you gave me a fraction of that, that would go a long way yeah. because we're super under-resourced. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and you see that play out across the board. You see people coming in new to the community and, you know, ASU's rolling out the red carpet to give them a guest, you know, uh, artist or guest, per, you know, whatever ship. And those that are in the community that have been doing the work, completely overlooked. Yeah. So there's this idea and, and that's, it le it's a cycle where then we're the local artists are constantly underfunded, but maybe we're underfunded. You know, maybe our work isn't as good as the coast because we're under resourced, and they actually support the artists in those communities. I mean, maybe support us at that level, and then we'll be able to. You know, you won't see our work as. You know, why would we have to leave to, to you know outside of this community to get notoriety? So, the fact that this region is completely invisible, and the way in which presenters and funders do not support the artists that are from here is insanely problematic. Yeah. Like if they could reinvest even half of that funding, reinvest it into the artists in this community, it would have a large impact. There's a lot of talent, but it's under-resourced. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and, and those resources could go to combating some of these barriers that these mm -hmm. talented art makers have. So much of what you're saying really resonates with my experience in dance in Yuma because, I mean, Yuma's such a small community, and there's so many talented young dancers that I, um, I would, I was, I mean, as little dance experience as I had there, like, I was technically their peer, and uh, socioeconomically, Yuma's the worst, one of the worst. Unemployment's one of the worst. Unemployment's like a disaster yeah. in Yuma. Unemployment's like, a disaster, you know, so they're coming from like either working class or poor families. Um, so like a lot of times the only dance experience that they would get would be in high school, like high school dance. And uh, they were amazing yeah. given the, the lack of classes that they were able to take. It just makes you wonder like, you know, like where their potential yeah. is at and like what are they can reach yeah. with the like, you know, proper funding, but it's like that's something you'll never get to mm -hmm. see. And they so desperately, you know, wanted to become dancers. And it just like, I think especially there, it just seems like something that was unattainable. And I think for me too, just being an artist seemed unattainable because of the community and like where you're from. But yeah, I, I don't even know how they would bring in, like my high school would bring in like really great dancers, like 
choreographers from LA to, and I don't, we were, I mean, I went to Yuma High, which is like the poorest high school in the community. Home and of the criminals. Home of the criminals. And I don't, your high school mascot. I don't even know yeah, like how they found that. <laughs> my whole family. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know how they would fund that, but like, I didn't even know that Phoenix had, or Phoenix or Tucson had all of these amazing uh, dancers and dance communities because Yuma was like LA. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how. I, well, they're closer to LA, aren't they? Not, not no. Really. No. Five hours. It's like six oh, hours okay. away. Okay. San Diego's closer. Okay. San Diego's three. Maybe that's why. Yeah. On the way. Yeah. Well, I think that speaks to the geographic isolation, mm -hmm. right? And the fact that like there's a robust dance community in Douglas that I just learned yeah. about like in February, and it's like, how did we not know? You're two yeah. hours away. We're like, so that's... cut off from like each other. Like I don't know anything about Douglas, yeah. and I've lived in Arizona almost my whole life. And like today is the first day I've spent any time in like Tucson, <laughs> like yeah. ever. The geography is like mm -hmm. it. It's, it's a huge issue. But the other thing is too, and this is this is when you get through, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a, I'll just say a Latina, because I'm going to talk from my own personal experience, you get through to the university level. Yeah. And then there's two other Latinas in there. Mm -hmm. And you don't have any mentors or peers, and all of the dance professors are white. And they don't understand this folklorico contemporary fusion piece that you're trying to do. Yeah. And they can't mentor you in that. Then that is problematic too. Yeah. So they, it's not because they don't exist, it's because they're invisible and isolated. So the lack of identifiable mentors, peers, role models for these up and coming students mm -hmm. is really problematic. There's no archive, to the best of my knowledge, there's no archive of dance in the Southwest. There's no national Latinx dance archive or, you know, Latinx choreographers, makers that anybody can go to, to like look to like who's doing work in this area. Yeah. Um, there's no database. This is really, it's really problematic. There's no research. Um, and this was all some of the stuff that we talked about in Dance in the Desert. It's like, well, how do we want to solve this problem? And if so, how? Like, how do we begin to connect with elders? Because maybe what, what, maybe what I'm trying has been attempted before. And like, what can I learn from that? Um, so once those that overcome all these boundaries, because that system is designed to weed you out. That system was designed to weed me out with my yeah. short body and big ass. Like, <laughs> I was told when I was at the U of A dance department, they're like, you are too short, you're never going to be cast yeah. in a faculty piece. And I wasn't. And that's and I didn't, also didn't have ballet lines at the time. <laughs> um, and so, okay, fine. But um, yeah, so if you, even if you don't get pushed out, because the system's designed to push you out, the body type yeah. and aesthetics are another um, equitable thing that I can talk about, then when you get to that level, there's like, you're alone. There's that isolation, not yeah. only geographically, but also like literally you're like one of two or like the only one. And it's yeah. really problematic, especially when um, another barrier is aesthetics in terms of movement, but also this intersects with body and body type and what body what bodies quote unquote look good on stage, what bodies quote unquote deserve to be on stage. Wow. And they're usually yeah. thin, white, long and young. So yeah. there's like you hear audiences say, we don't want to see old dancers because we don't want to see their faces. That's crazy. <laughs> like, I'm just like, what? Like, they're like, we're going to just pass on all this talent and all of these things we could learn because, yeah, pass. We'll take somebody who's like fresh and like young. It's interesting too because I feel like that's something that's like, 
the opposite in many other fields. It's yeah. like we want that experience. It's like why would this be any different? Like, and you have you have different stories to tell. Yeah, because I definitely think movement is a storytelling tool. <laughs> That's I don't so know. Exciting. In general, because of these Western Eurocentric aesthetics that are held, like ballet is still at the top of the hierarchy yeah. in concert dance. It's held as the epitome. Yeah, and so that is like you know. It's it's a young art form. They talk. There's lines, right? You talk about these ballet lines. You want to have these long, going on forever mm -hmm. limbs and this like crazy hyperextended legs and these feet and um, and that is a high ideal. That is the aesthetic. And mm -hmm. so if you don't look like that, I was reading an article like from Dance Magazine a couple days ago, and it was like, why do all these good dancers that do these competitions like why do some of them make it? And so literally, they had a lady quoting. I don't remember who she was, but she's saying. Uh, when they have the wrong, they don't have the right body type. So this idea of like a right body type, yeah. I definitely don't have the right body type for a you know concert dancer. <laughs> yeah. So so that is that's a barrier. That's a barrier to equity because not everybody is going to look like that, and yeah. that doesn't mean that who who said I actually wanted to go see that on stage. Yeah. And the communities right. that I'm reaching might necessarily not necessarily want to see that long, thin, young, mm -hmm. white body type on stage, right? Yeah. You know. Um, in other types of aesthetics too, like the way you move, like everything's really held in those classical modern and, and ballet forms, you don't really kind of move like this mm -hmm. in circular ways. And, you know, the hips and the pelvis don't kind of move like they do in some other dance forms. But also the music, the type of music, the language. Oh my goodness, when I did a piece for a dance company in 2006 that wasn't mine, I, I did it bilingually. I did it the way my friends and I talked. So it was in English and Spanish. And mm -hmm. um, I had a, one of a, my peers in the company at the time who I'd known since I was a freshman in college. Uh, we were in the dance department and then in academic classes together. I overheard her telling the um, director of the company, my family doesn't want to see a Mexican woman screaming on stage. So like, yeah, yeah. So like linguistic, right? And again, like I, I know you can't see me on the podcast, but I'm a very light skinned without an accent. If anything, I have an accent in Spanish because my Spanish yeah. isn't that good. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like, wow. Right. And I was the only one in the company at that time, the only Latina in the company. So there's linguistic aesthetics. There's like colors of costumes and skin colors and like what, like there's all these aesthetics that, you know, just when I, I did a, uh, the last show that my company produced, I did a piece on a 1965 Chevy CT. You can see the poster ad mm -hmm. for it right there. Um, and it was about um, lowrider culture. It was celebrating lowrider culture because the community asked us to create this piece. Um, and I worked with the director, the, the, the guy that drove the truck, his name is Chava, and his um, partner, she came on as our dramaturg and really coached the dancers on like really how to embody, like there's a whole way to embody that cholo yeah. aesthetic and way of being. And um, the audience members either loved it or hated it because it was a different aesthetic, because it's a subculture aesthetic yeah. and, and it's from like, this is a Southwestern aesthetic and in general, all of the brown people in the audience loved it, it was their favorite piece, when are you gonna do it again? And the white people in the audience were, they hated it. So much so that my one white dancer who wasn't in the dance had to come and tell me how much her audience didn't like it. And oh I was like, I, and I could have gone really like in your face with it, right? Because sometimes that culture is, but I oh, didn't. Yeah. It was very much a celebration. It was fun. It was lighthearted, you know. 
um, the truck moved, the hydraulics moved with the dancers. It was a, a fun piece to do. But so there's those aesthetic inequities. Yeah. When I submit that, I don't submit that as a work sample for most of my grants because I know it won't get through a grant panel that it's yeah. expecting me to look like a postmodern contemporary dance on a stage. They're going to say it's outside. We want to see work that's in a theater. Um, what is this stuff? It's considered low in like kitsch. It's considered low culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not, unless I'm doing something that's of these other like very Eurocentric forms, I get slapped on the wrist at grant panels and then I don't get access to those resources. Yeah. So those, like the bodies too, the bodies of the dancers you use, they get very, grant panels can get critical about that too. Okay. So it's like these access to resources, so it all like intersects to create these barriers. So even yeah. when, yeah. So on, on so many levels, like I said, it's a, it's a system designed to push you out. And when you do something like that, or when I work with like a cast that has different body types and body shapes, then even when it's in a theater, it's like the slap on the wrist. Yeah. So this, um, you talking about a lot of this reminds me of the first performance, like concert performance I did as a child. And I was like the chubbiest little Mexican girl with like a mushroom haircut. Perfect little mushroom. And we had to do the bluebird, like we had we were dressed up as bluebirds. And we have this picture of like the whole group of girls. And there's like a bunch of little skinny white girls. And then there's like one little skinny Asian girl. And then there's me. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I, I will say that, you know, it was one of the reasons why I ended up quitting dance, because I was like, I look so silly and I don't feel like I fit in. Um, but I will include the, uh, I'm gonna go to my grandparents' house or have my grandma take a picture of it or something and send it to me so I can include them in the show notes because it's so funny. I think I've seen it. It's like on her like that like table yeah. she has like in the living room. Yeah. yeah, we have it on display, but it's, it's I mean, it's not, you know, I, I didn't think it was funny. I was sad when I was like five years old, but I mean, it was totally like a, mental barrier for me being a little chubby little oh, well, Mexican oh my. brown girl. But I've had dance teachers and choreographers. Like U of A still sends out fat letters. They don't call them that. They call them wow. conditioning letters. But they still to this what day. What do they say? Like what? How do you like politically like it's like a, how is that like how do you make that letter like politically correct? Well, like what does it say? I, well, I didn't get one when I was there um, because I was so under the radar and marginalized. I don't think anybody really cared. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Yeah, they're called conditioning letters, and I don't know, but I do know they leave dancers in tears, and they're still doing it. Oh, my God. And even um, when I was at ASU, I walked into a class where the professor didn't know me, and I introduced myself. I'm like, hi, I'm here. I'm going to take the class. And I got, I know you can't see this on the podcast, but I got looked up and down like this. Oh, my God. A fuchi face, and then told, this is a very advanced dance class. So already, just by looking at my body, thinking that I can't dance because I don't have that traditional body. Yeah. So it's still out there. And I, that's problematic because they're taking students at ASU that are very diverse and from mm -hmm. very different backgrounds. But if the faculty still have those, they've been indoctrinated and still kind of um, microaggression, like like yeah. maintain that, that aesthetic, then it's really problematic. Um, so... Yeah. What was your question? You mentioned something, and I was like something else, and now it like flew away. Like your bluebird, it flew out of my brain. <laughs> like the actual question. We yeah, there about? was. We were on a track, and then I got sidetracked by like the micro and macro aggressions that still exist about body. Oh, yes, that I've had choreographers tell me that you need to lose weight, or when you contract mm -hmm. over your leg in second position, 
with, put, your, put your hands on the floor. Yeah. Dancers, you know what I'm talking about to say this, that your stomach shouldn't touch your leg. Mm -hmm. So like, there's still like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But if you had, if I would have had, I don't know, mentors or teachers that looked like me, I would have felt more confident Yeah. in, in dancing. So that's so crazy. And it's so upsetting to hear too, that like people are like, um, like your low rider performance and they're just like, we like hate that. And it's just like, it's not for you. You know, like, it's like, that's what like, I, I always come back to people are like, Oh, I felt like, you know, like weirded out by this thing. Like, cause I don't relate to it. And I'm like, how do you think I feel watching literally everything that exists? Yeah. Like, that's how I literally always feel. And this is like one thing and you're upset because you're like, you don't relate. And it's just like, well, and how do you not look past something that you're unfamiliar with to appreciate it? In yeah, appreciate it and attempt to understand it, which is a thing that I literally do with all of the Eurocentric standards that I've like grown up, you know, like knowing and experiencing with every like art form. It's just like, that's the standard. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, I wrote about those experiences for, yeah. and I presented it at a paper at the Gloria Anzaldúa conference in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. um, and it, the, the, it was called Who Takes Center Stage? Centering Chicano Experiences. And it's that, but it's a thing. It's a thing where like I get pushback. Like, if, well, who's this for? We can't sell this to a dance audience because dance audiences are baby boomers and they're white and they're middle class and they don't want to see this. So like we can't, this, so who's it for? And is it sustainable? When you, because I don't center whiteness in my yeah. work. I center my experience and the experiences of communities that I'm a part of like the South Tucson community in that instance, or, or in my current work stories from home, my family stories. Um, yeah, but then it makes, then I run into all these other barriers of like, well, then we can't market this. We can't sell this. Who's this for? Who's your target audience? Uh, you know, that audience doesn't come to, you know, who wants to see it? But yes, yes. Talking about like who's, who gets a voice and I'm always, always portraying other people's voices and this mm -hmm. is my voice. Yeah. But it's, a, it's, it's a thing. It is a thing. It's a big thing. It's a huge thing. <laughs> so that goes back to those like inequity and in how this field isn't equitable. Yeah. yeah, when when whiteness is decentered from dance stages, um, white stories, white bodies, there's harsh reactions to that because everything is always for and about those communities. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of like, um, I remember what I was gonna say now when you told the bluebird. Um, not only in some dance spaces where they completely ignored and marginalized, but their mentors and the choreographers, I was always overlooked too, mm -hmm. which made me get to back to the first question about what are some of the, the internal things is that I would feel like oh, question the value yeah. because the favorites were always the tall white women mm -hmm. and I always kind of got like this sloppy second look yeah. at them for like choreography because they, I had a mentor tell me, you always invent God in your image. And so the, they were mentoring those that look like them that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yes. I'm, kind of so. <laughs> I'm just like mad. <laughs> People are like, why are you so mad all the time? And I'm like, you don't even know. Like, and like, you should be mad too. You should all be mad. <laughs> like, don't get it. If you're not mad, you heard the problem. You're not like paying attention. <laughs> like, we should all be really mad. One of my colegas came to, she was my dramaturg, Fabiola, and she, um, came to visit me at ASU and then uh, when she was leaving, she's like, now I understand why you're so feisty. I'm like, okay, good, we, now I get it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, how can we fix this? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, Where let's see. Okay, 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 okay. I did like 
some brainstorming before you came because that was a really hard question. I'm like, I okay. okay, so number one, <laughs> I like I was just telling somebody that I like bullet points. I'll go bullet points. Um, invest in the artists that are already here. For God's sake, stop bringing in people from LA and New York. And I'm talking to every producer and funder. Invest yeah. in those that are here. Arm us with the resources to do the work that we're already doing and do it well. And then we won't have this talent drain where people always leave yeah. after they graduate from school um, because, or, or leave the field to take a managerial position at Banana Republic because they yeah. can actually make money off of the artwork. Pay dancers. Yeah. Pay people. You know, I know we're probably not at the able to pay a living wage. We're probably super far from it, but yeah. pay them something. They have to drive there. They have to take Absolutely. time out of their work. I mean, pay artists. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, uh, support rural and mid-sized cities. Support those that aren't like the center of power. Because in the West, we have this weird thing where we have one large city, one mid-sized city, and a bunch of rural cities. Mm -hmm. So like, right, we have with Nevada, Vegas, Reno, and then like, rural, yeah. yeah. What else? Exactly, I can't Maybe even name it. Laughlin, maybe. We drove through rural Nevada, and we were like, this is rough. Yeah. Like, we were like, we don't want to stop the car. Like, it was crazy. Like Utah, do they even have a mid-sized city? Maybe they do, I don't know. There's like, Salt Lake. Salt Lake. And like Provo. Is Provo like, maybe they're mid-sized? Is that mid I don't know. And then like, look, those are the only cities I can even name in like Utah. I don't know the names of any other places. I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. But, but and like, then like, and then in Arizona you have like Phoenix, Tucson, everywhere else, right? Yeah. Flagstaff, Douglas, Yuma. Yeah. Um, and then in, uh, in New Mexico, I mean the largest city is Albuquerque, which is the size mm -hmm. of Tucson. Um, which I'm from there and I don't like outsiders, so I'm like, yay, keep it small. But um, <laughs> Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and then like Las Cruces and everywhere else. Yeah. So there's like this, this really weird thing. Um, so funding those that are outside of those centers of power that are not in the, the, the Las Vegases and in the Phoenixes and in the Albuquerque, like, right, because that, that's a really unique Southwest geography thing. Mm -hmm. um, resource artists so they can connect across geographies in their own communities. Right. That's a thing too. Um, Oh my goodness, start to start an archive on dance that's being created in the Southwest, on art that's being created in the Southwest, on Latinx dance, on the rural communities, like where, mm -hmm. who fund people from those communities, not outsiders that don't know anything about the work, fund people from those communities to write about the work, to document the work, to research the work so that we exist. Yeah. And there's this trail of paper because the only way we exist apparently is if we write it down, I don't know, I mean, that's super academic, that's super institutionalized, but because I can't find a lot of my Latinx mentors that came before me, yeah. I believe that that's, okay, that's the game we're gonna have to play at this point, then let's okay. do it. So, um, and really think about like who, who is in these communities, who can write about and talk about these communities, who can be fun from them, that also, again, so the knowledge is being generated there, but that's like the beginning. And then looking at like, looking at the barriers to dance, and then also like, opening it up to the different aesthetics, fund the dances that are happening on the back of 1965 Chevy CT trucks with bags, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, fund that work. Um, but really, I think it's gonna start with, people need to invest in their local communities and, and stop thinking that everything from outside is, is better. Yeah, and it's so much more, it's more sustainable, it's more, um, it's better for the economy. <laughs> yes. Like, yes, because if you give me money, I'm gonna hire local dancers, I'm gonna print my flyers at the local yeah. print shop, I'm gonna reinvest that in this community. But when you bring someone in from New York, they're just That's gonna go take it and run. And, yeah. and the, not, the idea that we need all this professional development from people in New York, 
No. They don't understand. They don't know the they challenges don't. here. They don't understand the landscape or what the culture. problems are here. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand like, oh my goodness, I just did the summer leadership institute for Bush women. They don't understand how race is constructed here. Mm-hmm. So it's really challenging for the outsiders to come in and kind of you know superimpose these ideologies and and these models that won't work. Yeah, yeah and it's interesting too because it's like obviously like New York and LA are very diverse places, but it's still like very different like the way race relations and like their culture works versus ours it's like it's a whole yes. different landscape yeah. yes like especially like border culture like it's like yes. that's something they literally cannot comprehend it's not something they've experienced and yeah. like it's not something you can just explain in like an hour like you have yes. to live that yes and that's missing it's completely missing and the artists they'll bring in outside artists or artists from other parts of the border that don't understand this corridor of the border yeah. and it doesn't work yeah, yeah. Just because it's, it's so different. damn big. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah, it is so different. different. The histories are different. And so, yeah, that's, yeah, invest in, invest in the local artists. We could do so much with a fraction of what you pay to bring in all these other people oh, from out of, yeah. And you don't have to go far for something to be, like, drastically different either. Like, Tucson's very different mm-hmm. than Phoenix. Yes. Like, El Paso, I think, is what, like, maybe, like, four hours away from here. But I'm yep. sure it's very different. Yeah. Like, you know. Dude, Tucson sent him a saguaro. Like, this ancient hundreds and hundreds of year old saguaro. And they were like, okay, thanks. Lord knows what they do with it. <laughs> yeah. To try to bring oh, him here? Oh, that. my. Sorry to interrupt, but that I'm just still crazy. like, why would you that. do that? Every time I, like, I'm, like, I'm trying to, like, cut myself off and, like, wean myself from, like, <laughs> using Amazon because I just feel terrible yeah, every time I order something. I'm just like, oh, my God. Yeah. And I've seen, like, recently, like, these, like, Viceland videos of people literally in Phoenix, like, um, delivering for Amazon and, like, they're using their own gas, they're using their own cars, they get a flat tire and they don't get paid that day and they're, like, struggling to, like, pay their bills and I'm just like, this is horrible. Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and I think, unfortunately, people really... Um, value the biotech and tech uh, fields a lot more than the arts, oh, yeah. you know. And they're yeah, they're finally sure. starting to get it. And like we need to bring that realization to arts as well, the arts and design, because it it really is like what's gonna save our asses at the end of the day. <laughs> When I feel like ultimately it's like you're missing out on so much like local talent and community and networking. Mm-hmm. Like you're like oh, yeah. not meeting people that like you can have these like great bonds with because you're just looking outside always. And it's like your neighbor might be like just as interested yeah. in like, you know, whatever you're pursuing as you are. And you'd never know that if you're not looking. There's a lot of programs being developed, I think, without community at the table. They're bringing in all these people that are supposed from out that from outside the yeah. region. And it's like, well, you're trying to reach this community that has no stake in the game. Mm-hmm. I, why would they care? I think, it, well, it's funny that you say, like, you don't really trust outsiders. I feel very similarly, I think, in, um, like, in Phoenix, because so many, and I think a lot in the startup culture, people are coming here, well, to Phoenix, to... <coughs> Uh, start their businesses because it's cheaper than yeah. you know Silicon Valley or wherever. Yeah. It's cheaper than most places um, in the country right now. And I'm always like, and they're like trying to you know change the culture, like try to bring everyone together in the startup community. And I feel pretty removed from the startup community as much as I work in it um, because I'm so immersed in the arts and you know culture communities. But um, 
I'm like, you don't know, you don't know me, you don't know it's my not, friends, yeah. you don't know the people that grew up here. Like, because ASU is such a funnel for mm -hmm. talent. So like people are either coming to ASU to go to school and then they stay, or people are just coming straight out of like wherever to start their business. And then they're like all gung-ho about changing, you know, changing Phoenix for the better, it's quote, like, air quotes, for the startup community, yeah. which neglects the people that are there, that have been there. It's yeah. another form of settler colonialism. It like, is, yeah. really, really. And the reason I'm so wary, it's not that I don't like outsiders, I, and I'm actually not from Tucson, so, you know, I'm an outsider in this community. But, you know, I'm from northern New Mexico, which the area my mom's from has experienced four colonizations, the most recent yeah. being 1940 with the whole, like, atomic yeah. bomb thing. So, like, anytime someone who comes in it's like cringe what are you gonna try to take yeah. um, and I think that like there's danger to that right the gentrification um, the pricing people out mm -hmm. the lack of recognizing the value in those communities the historic knowledge of those communities yeah. um, you know that that's all problematic just respect, like just plain respect. It's like you don't know about this culture and you don't care to know. You just come in with the assumption that yours is superior and that yes. it should, it is colonization. It's, it's the same thing. It's like yeah. manifest destiny, like 400 years later, still happening. No, because you know what I, I found recently in, in, de in, in working and in being around artists from the East Coast, manifest destiny, like really, the I, fact that nothing was here and this is vacant, like they, they really inadvertently kind of bought into that because I'm like no people have been here like the indigenous people are there they're here they're not they're all dead here. like yeah. they're like what are you talking about and like this used to be Mexico and there were like people like me that were a part of Mexico and yeah. then you know and it was this area was Mexico longer than it's been the United States and yeah. these constructions of whiteness are recently arrived to this area and you know this these racial dynamics that work on the east coast don't work here but there's this like they kind of zone over and I'm like oh wow manifest destiny que sigue siendo because there there isn't that recognition that this is here. It's like the West is empty and it has no culture and it has no history when in actuality I'm like, no, that's so not much. the case. Yeah. 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 So it really is. And it's, it's a lack of, um, and I know people poop like poo poo on this term now, but it's a lack of cultural competency okay. also because it's not, the respect has been brought up. That's a cultural value of Mexican Americans. Um, and so that lack of respect and reciprocity yeah. is really problematic. But yeah, it's another form of settler colonialism. I feel like anybody that's like not okay with the term either, like cultural competency, like has no cultural competency. <laughs> like they're like they feel really attacked because like that's them, and they've been like called out and like recognized for it, and they're like, oh shit, they're on to me. <laughs> yeah, that way of dealing is just really yeah. Oh. That is crazy. I feel like it's hard for me to even acknowledge that that's like a thing either because it's like I've spent the majority of my life like on this side of the country or like, you know, we'd briefly like go to like Florida when we were like kids to see my grandparents, but then that's like the South. That's like a whole other like entity. Yeah. So like just like that whole like East Coast mentality. I'm just like, what? Like, how do you not know about anything that's happening on this ginormous side of the country? Like, yeah. how are you just totally unaware? You think it's just like L.A. and nothing else is out here. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, what? Like, there's so much going on. How are, like, because I feel like here in school, it's, like, different. It's, like, you learn all about, like, the 13 colonies, and you learn about, like, everything settling yeah. on that side of the country. And it's, like, they're not learning anything about this side. Yeah. Where, like, it's, like, it's not, like, history happened there first, and then, like, they moved but here. But that's it's the like, narrative. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the narrative. And that's, and they really, because manifest destiny. Because yeah. that, that, because they had to sell that to them to justify the whole yeah. sea, the shining sea 
crap that yeah. was it Polk Polk had in his mind and like justify the invasion of Mexico and so it's like so we don't exist and I am tired of being invisible on my own homelands and I'm yeah, yeah I'm in Arizona I'm close enough to northern Mexico and I'm tired of going to you know undoing racism workshops and being completely invisible and what the heck yeah. you know the, right. you know it's just crazy it's mind-boggling it but it's real it's real yeah, yeah just like the things that like people say I don't know I don't know and I feel like as like a like racially ambiguous person I hear like I overhear people saying just like horrible like racist inappropriate things all the time and like because I don't really know like what I am or like what my background is so they'll say things and I'm just like oh my god I'm standing right here <laughs> like and you have no idea like I get that too and yeah. I think it's because people because I am so light yeah. that people forget yeah, yeah. and then you're like oh my god yeah yeah <laughs> like like, you realize that we just said that to me, right? <laughs> I think this is so funny. Like, people always think Amanda is Asian. And then just, like, and then, like, somebody one time even asked you, like, are you sure? Yeah. And, like, that was, like, my favorite question ever. I was just, like, what do you mean, are you sure? Like, I was just, like, somebody literally said that to you. Like, and I'm still just, like, what? Like, I'm, like, remember that time that happened? <laughs> like, because I'm just, like, what? Like, Oh, my goodness. I had something similar. I had this elder white guy insisting that I was Irish and just didn't know it. Oh <laughs> your grandma must be Irish because of the, yeah. the reddish hair. And I'm like, look, I know my great grandma. No, no, I'm like, my <laughs> ancestors. I like, literally know her. I'm like, my ancestors have been in northern Mexico for literally centuries. And I'm a mestiza, so like the dawn of time. Yeah. So I'm like, no, I'm not Irish. I have no Irish background. But he was just so adamant. That I'm like, you just don't know your I'm like, no, I know. I can literally go and touch. My great grandma lived in a house that belonged to my great grandfather's grandma. Mm -hmm. So like, that's where my family is from. Yeah. It's like, no. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Like, I get like weird shit from even like my own like extended family. They're like, but you're not like really black. And I'm like, no, I am. We have the same grandma. Like, remember asshole? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, my mom's literally your mom's sister. Like, we're cousins, fool. Like, what? Like, but like, you know, like my skin is lighter. And they're like, well, that must come with some sort of pri privilege. And I'm just like, I don't know. Because maybe it does. Maybe it does like if you grow up somewhere else. But it's like I grew up in Yuma, Arizona, where everyone is white or everyone is Mexican. So I was just like this weird like other. Yeah. So it's just like maybe it could have afforded me privilege somewhere else. But it's like but that's not what I grew up with. But it's that's like that's not my narrative. And when people from the East Coast come and don't understand that or yeah. people from L.A. and the coast come and don't understand that dynamic, then they, again, don't understand how race and ethnicity is constructed here. Yeah. It's yeah. different. And then there's this misconception I too like I feel like growing up in Yuma where people are like oh it's so diverse because it's like half the people there are like Mexican and I'm like that's two types of people that's not like diversity we have this and we have that and like you're still like this weird other yeah. if you're literally anything else so it's just like I'm like what like because it's like I feel like there was always like that like idea that oh it's like so diverse because we're like on the border and I was always like no it's not <laughs> like I promise it's not <laughs> like so we've talked about like so much and some deep, awesome conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Asked you some really hard questions. I know. I was like, <laughs> just like we encourage everyone who's listening to be really angry, yeah. <laughs> like, but be like productive about it, <laughs> like yeah. by supporting local artists, yeah, and investing in the local think tanks that have you know yeah. understand yeah. the histories of these communities and the yeah. yeah. Don't set anything on fire, at least not without a plan. <laughs> like, I don't know. Channel your rage. And manifest destiny. Like, we got to work to undo that because that is a really problematic. <laughs>
what advice do you wish you had gotten sooner in your career? Um, and like, what would you tell somebody that is basically the younger you? Yeah, your younger self, that's what I was gonna say. Like, I always wish I could go back and give myself that advice, like all the time. Don't quit. Whatever you do, keep making art, even if it's like one thing a year. Don't walk away. Yes, you have everything you need inside of you. Yeah, maybe people don't look like you or understand you, but like keep doing it. Find your peers, reach out, look until you can find your community and don't quit. Um, the other piece of advice, make sure you get paid. <laughs> don't give your art away for free. Yeah. Make sure that people are compensating you for your time for the artwork and also your intellectual property and knowledge production. So they're gonna get asked, I'm not attached to any large institution. I get asked all the time to sit on committees, panels, whatnot, and there are people there that are salaried, faculty, staff, arts administrators that are getting paid a salary to be there and I'm not. And that's not equitable, that's not equity. Yeah. Make sure that you get paid. I, from one of my mentors who is a white male, very well-meaning, um, told me to make sure when I started my company that I got paid last. That was the worst advice ever. I did that until 2015, um, and all it did was lead to burnout and bitterness and resentfulness, and the artists wanted more because they deserved more. Yeah. I couldn't give them more, and I wasn't getting paid anything myself, and I was writing, like, I wrote 25 grants that artistic year. So like, mm -hmm. pay yourself. Um, whether you think you deserve it or not, pay yourself. Because um, you probably do deserve you it. You do deserve you it. Deserve you deserve it. it. There's no question. Don't let anybody you tell you. That word. Yes. You Don't let it. anybody tell you otherwise. Um, know your artistic core values and make sure that those govern everything that you do and every collaboration into which you enter. Um, because sometimes people will ask you to do some unethical things collaborators, organizations, and you'll have to know like, this is the limit, these are my values, this is where I'm gonna put my um, my energies to. Because yeah. you'll be asked to do things that you're uncomfortable with, or maybe this pays, but like you super have to sell out, and like yeah. to, what, to what extent do you have that? Um, and get a support system. Whether, remember I said find peers earlier, like artists, mentors that are look like you understand what you're going for with your work but also like a support system and family and friends that you can have conversations with and carry you through in the case like with me i needed my extended family my in-laws to help me with my child mm -hmm. i could not have done the fellowship without him i could not have done that stuff at urban bush woman without him like mm -hmm. that is an integral support system that i need so figure out what that is and yeah. um like self-care <laughs> Self-care, yeah, because it's easy um, to put, not put yourself on the, to, to work yourself so much and to hustle so much that you're not taking care of yourself. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, where can people find you or connect with you or see your, um, you know, choreography or work or whatever? Well, I will update my website soon. Okay. Um, Hopefully by the time this comes out. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that fell to the wayside, right? Um, so my website is ivanmontoya.co. Uh, I'm also the MPA Project, the Motherhood and Performing Arts Project, is on Instagram at MPA Project One. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at MPA Project One. 
Um, I don't have like a professional Facebook page, mm -hmm. but if you Facebook stalk me, I can add you to my personal page. But <laughs> I will also have to have a professional Facebook page at some point. Yeah. 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 I'm just a one woman show, so it's a lot. <laughs> All right, that is it. A huge thank you to Yvonne for speaking with us and also for her patience in, uh, in us getting this out because we know that it has been a while. It's been long overdue since we premiered this podcast, but better late than never. Really though, like the support and encouragement has not gone unnoticed and we really appreciate it. And we hope, you know, anybody who kind of enjoyed listening to our very nice voices and our super smart and exceptional conversations <laughs> doesn't feel let down. <laughs> All right. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye.